This is a crowd podcast. Seaside resorts don't work in the middle of winter. Everything's closed. Steel shutters down over the shops. Bars empty. Restaurants shut up. No one around when in summer it's heaving with people, with noise and colour and good times, with life. But this is where we are in a cold, grey February. Rain coming in off the sea, deserted streets. And this is where it will end for a great sportsman, for a national hero. Alone, in a hotel room, barricaded inside, all the furniture piled up against the door, paranoia about who's out to get him, cocaine on the table, on the floor, in a fine white dust, settling on everything. A noose made out of sheets, a pool of blood spreading out across the carpet, pills and syringes and Everything broken. Everything smashed. Marco Pantani has a look when he's winning the world's biggest bike races. Shaved head, gold hoop earring, diamond stud in his nose, bandana tied back, not a helmet. That's his look. That's why they call him the pirate. You can win bike races in different ways. With strength on the flat, with big muscles and solid power, with a great team helping you through. Pantani's a little man. Five foot seven, nine stone. He's got a broken nose and sticking out ears. But he wins the beautiful way on the big mountains, flying away from his rivals, leaving them for dead. He wins where the air's thin and the roads are dangerous. He wins alone. He's a climber, that's what they call them. These little riders who can just pedal away from everyone else, who can out-suffer their rivals. Everyone can ride a bike. Only a chosen few can really climb like Pantani does. So his story, the one that ends in a desolate seaside town when there's no one there, it's about winning big races. It's about climbing. But it's about the descent too. Pantani climbs, but no one falls as fast as him. No one falls as far. And it's about other things, the myths we build, the sweet lies we spin for ourselves, what we expect from our heroes, what we make them do. It's about how we treat them when it falls apart. How you can be loved by a nation and yet end it alone. Just you and the voices and the paranoia locked in a messed up room in an empty town. You can't keep climbing and cycling. 
everyone has to come down at some point. But what if you can't stop? What if the descent takes over? That's the story of Marco Pantani. How he lives, how he dies. This is Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network. Italy loves its cycling heroes. It loves racing bikes, how elegant they look. The sweep of the curved handlebars, the thin tubes of the frame, the way a moving chain fizzes like champagne. Italian cycling heroes are cool. Men like Fausto Coppi, dark hair swept back, winning races in a style that helped Italy forget about the Second World War, making Italy feel Italian. Pantani, he's different. He's from a little town on the Adriatic coast. Not a cool kid from the big city, from Milan or Rome. A skinny little kid who wants to play football but doesn't get picked because he's too small. So he joins the cycling club. And cycling works for him because he's shy and you don't talk, not when you're racing flat out. He's shy because of those sticking out ears and his broken nose and the scar on his mouth. He's so shy, he almost doesn't want to win. He doesn't want to stand out. And so he escapes on the bike and he likes that feeling of being out on his own. No one to tease him. And he likes riding so hard, it makes others feel the pain. He says, I like looking in their eyes. I like seeing them suffer. People notice you when you can ride like that. One writer looks at him climbing and watches him saying nothing and says, that kid's as fragile as glass and as hard as granite. And we notice too. There's three climbs we have to talk about with Pantani before we talk about the descent. This is the first. 1994. He's 24, in his second year as a pro. His hair's going already, another thing to add to the list. He's riding the Giro, Italy's biggest race. You're broken at the end of the Giro. You're broken halfway round. 120 miles a day, often more. You start thin and you end thinner. They're in the mountains on this day. Horrible mountains. Upper pass called the Mortirolo, a thin piece of dark tarmac clinging onto the hills, glistening in the mist. Nothing to see but the fir trees and the fog and the rain. It's so steep, you can barely walk it. You want to stop and sit down. And Pantani flies up it. It's like gravity isn't there for him. He floats. He's weightless. He beats the big names and the stars that day. Six million Italians are watching on TV. Him in his tight white jersey and blue shorts, out of the saddle, dancing on the pedals. Everyone knows Marco after that day. So that's the Giro, but there's no race bigger than the Tour de France. And there's no mountain more famous than Alpe d'Huez. This is our second climb, 
14 kilometers, 21 hairpin bends, from the valley floor into the clouds. It's cycling's Wembley, it's St Andrews, it's Lords, and Pantani attacks it like he wants to kill it, like he wants the whole world to suffer behind him. He goes faster than anyone's gone before, faster than copy, faster than you can drive it. Through those crowds, people thick on the roads, screaming in his face, waving flags, waving flares. There's something strange going on in cycling in the 1990s. Everyone's going faster. Records keep going. The old champions can't keep up. Not anymore. Sometimes you wonder why. How come they're so much quicker? What are they doing that they weren't doing before? But you don't think too long because it's so cool to watch. The attacks, the accelerations, the little miracles in every pedal stroke. And Pantani, he's all of that. The gold earring, the bandana. Helmets? Helmets imprison my thoughts. So when he wins the Giro in 1998 and does the same at the Tour, we're all believers. We're all caught up in the myths. A teammate at the Giro gets suspended for doping. No one wants to talk about that. It's how he climbs. How, on the big mountain, he throws off his bandana. He throws away his water bottle, his sunglasses. The diamond nose stud, that's flung into the trees too. He wants to be weightless. Alone. He talks about suffering so badly on climbs, he can taste blood. It's cruel, but you like that too. The riders suffer, so we don't have to. We can just watch. And the third climb we have to talk about, that comes as he wins the Tour in 98. It's the Galibier, and the Galibier is a monster. 2,642 meters up in the sky. Bare rock, nothing there but old snow and fresh pain. It's raining again. There's hail. Watching on TV, you can barely see a thing. The cameras are all smears of water and blurs. All that stands out is this small skinny man flying. The number 21 on his back, his pale blue bike, his legs spinning. No one else can stay with him. They're strung out on the road below him, wet, frozen, like pearls spilling off a broken necklace. That's why we have to talk about it, what he does to the rest of them, how he makes them hurt. And when he wins that tour and his whole team get their ears pierced and bleach their hair yellow to match the yellow jersey you wear when you lead the tour, it's like the whole world is coming to Pantani. Now the Pope wants a signed jersey. Everyone wants a replica bandana. Everyone wants a Bianchi bike like his. The sweep of the curved handlebars, the thin tubes of the frame. There's 50,000 on the streets in his hometown to welcome him back. Italy's Prime Minister is there. Pantani's the new Fausto Coppi. That's what they say. And there's someone else they compare him to. 
another natural climber, a rider from the past called Charlie Gore, another slim, small man who won the tour, a climber so good, they called him the Angel of the Mountains. Remember Charlie, we're coming back to him, Marco's coming back to him, and Copy. But know that Charlie can look sad too, a winner full of melancholy. And that's Marco Pantani when he should be happy, when he should be complete. This is what he says in a quiet moment. I feel more alone than ever. And when he tries to explain why he climbs so well, he says something even stranger. He says, I love the mountains, but I'm filled with deep hatred. So I try to shorten the suffering. That's why he rides so hard, so fast. That's why he flies. That's why he tastes blood. There's something else that happens at the Tour de France in 98. They find banned drugs, testosterone, human growth hormone, amphetamine, something called EPO. And it's EPO they keep finding in vials and syringes. What does EPO do? We could lose ourselves in science here, but... It basically makes you fast. It makes you fast by increasing the number of red blood cells in your body. That means more oxygen going to your muscles. That means you can pedal faster for longer. You don't hurt. You don't suffer. Remember everyone getting faster, all those attacks, all those records? This is why. Riders on EPO. Cheating. Winning. Getting away with it, because although EPO is banned, you can't test for it. Not yet. Stick a needle in your body, push the syringe, and it's like it's invisible. Except you know it's there. And your body knows it's there. And you take too much, and it changes your blood. Thickens it. Turns it into sludge. Sludge filling your veins, slowing your heart. And riders are dying. Fit, young men having heart attacks. Men of 26, men of 24, of 21, 18, 16. Some people don't care, don't want to know. Who says this is happening? Heroes don't cheat, not the good guys. Riders don't talk about it, not in public. There's a word they use for it, borrowed from the Camorra, the Italian mafia down in Naples. Omerta. It means vow of silence, a vow of honour. You say nothing to outsiders, nothing to the authorities. That's cycling in 1998. That's the world Pantani dominates. What does cycling do? They can't test for EPO, but they can test for what it does. Cycling's governing body draw a line in the sand. If the number of red blood cells in a rider goes above a certain level, they say they have to sit out a race. They don't call it a drugs test. They call it a health test. No one wants to bring down the heroes. No one wants to kill the myths. So Pantani rides the Giro in 99, and no one can get near him 
is almost six minutes ahead of everyone else. These races are often won by seconds. He's weightless again. Except they test him one morning. They do the health check. And he's way above the level. Above the level that's safe. Above the level anyone thinks is possible. At least naturally. They suspend him. He's out of the race. And so the descent begins. Pantani blames dehydration for the unnatural test result. He blames altitude. He blames the injuries from a recent crash. He blames everyone else. He says the same people who put me among the stars have thrown me in the gutter. He locks himself in the huge house he's had built for himself. Hundreds of reporters at the gates, long lenses on their cameras, listening devices in their hands. And he does something else too. He starts taking cocaine. It's easy in that part of Italy. Remember the Camorra down in Naples? If you've got money, it's there. If you want to lose yourself, it's easy. La roba, that's what he calls it. The stuff. And it changes him. He sits there, in the dark, blaming people. Paranoid. He scribbles in books on his bedsheets. They're out to get me. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag. This is Death of a Sports Star. There's another cyclist we need to talk about. The one you know, Lance Armstrong. In 1999, Lance is the miracle man. Lance is the rider who had cancer, who was gone. And now he's come back and he's somehow stronger than ever before, than everyone else. Armstrong is the good news story that cycling needs. That's what everybody thinks. Forget the dopers, forget the doubts. When Armstrong wins the Tour de France, he's the new hero. Not just in cycling, but everywhere. People who don't care about the tour care about Lance. He's Lazarus. He's a sporting messiah. And as he's winning, an Italian newspaper comes out with more stuff on Marco. They found files on a computer that say Marco's been doping since 93. It's been there in every big race. More red blood cells just when he needs them. 
more speed for the climbs, not suffering like we thought he did before. A fraud. A cheat. When Pantani descends on a bike, he's all about risks. He flies up mountains and he throws himself down them, his nose on those curved handlebars, his chest flat on the thin tubes of the frame. 50 miles an hour, down those narrow strips of dark, damp tarmac. 60 miles an hour, the air tearing at his jersey and bandana. 70, just a couple of tyres, as wide as your thumb, between him and oblivion. Now he's locked in his house, he's falling just as fast. There's talk about manic depression, about a personality disorder. They say he's obsessive, compulsive, that he's narcissistic. There's mood swings and there's always more cocaine, more deliveries from strange men at strange times. He goes out in his car, gets clocked doing almost 190 kilometers an hour, loses his license. And he tries to take on Armstrong at the tour in 2000. Armstrong the champion, Pantani the threat, or so they think. They race each other up the most brutal mountain, just those two alone, everyone else way back. And afterwards, when he's won, Lance calls Marco a shit starter. He looks at the sticking out ears and calls him Elefantino, Italian for little elephant. That's Lance, the miracle man. The Messiah. Pantani? He's broken. He pulls out of the tour, says he has stomach problems. He goes home, and the cocaine is the easy stuff now. He starts on crack. This shy, skinny kid. He can't escape on his bike. Not anymore. Remember Charlie Gould? The climber they compare Pantani to? The angel of the mountains? Here's where he comes back. There were no drug tests when Charlie Gould rode. No health checks. You could do what you liked. And you go back to old photos of him and he's foaming at the mouth sometimes. His rivals always talked about the pills he took. How he took more than anyone else. And Charlie Gould descends too. When he quits bikes, he sells his trophies. He drinks all the time. He goes to live in a hut in the Ardennes forest. He wears the same clothes every day and just disappears, weightless, alone. Pantani goes to see him, drives through the night from Italy to Luxembourg. No one knows what they talk about, these two climbers falling like stones. But just as Charlie Gould disappears, so does Marco Pantani. Back to his house, back to the cocaine. He'll do none for a week and then do what people call bulimic amounts. He has plastic surgery to straighten his broken nose and pin back those ears. He gets admitted to a psychiatric clinic. He's meant to be drying out. Instead, he gets another inmate to buy him a bag of cocaine as big as his fist. 
All the time, Armstrong keeps winning. Two Tour de France. Three. Four. You want heroes? You want myths? Here's what Armstrong says one time. For the people that don't believe in cycling, the cynics and the skeptics, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry you can't dream big, and I'm sorry you don't believe in miracles. And Pantani listens, and Pantani falls. He goes to Cuba, does a seance, chasing answers. He comes back, withdraws 20,000 euros at a time, buys 60 grams of coke, 70. He hides away, he smokes crack, alone, always alone. And so we come back to the seaside resort in winter. It's February 2004. Lance is the king of the world. Marco, Marco can't fall any further. He's in Rimini, just up the Adriatic coast from his hometown. Steel shutters down over the shops, streets empty, bars closed. The Hotel La Rose is one block back from the deserted beach. The taxi driver who drops Pantani off barely recognizes him. It's the way he smells, how bloodshot his eyes are. Pantani checks in. The only luggage he's got is a little bum bag and a bag of some sort of medicine. Fifth floor room, number 5D. He calls his usual dealer for La Roba, the stuff. He's back down in Naples, city of the Camorra, of the Amerta. The dealer calls a contact. By 9.30pm, Pantani's got his gear, 30 grams of cocaine. Enough for a lot of people for a long time, unless you're Pantani. And so he stays in his room, in this cold town, just half an hour from his own home, from his mother. 24 hours on, he rings reception. Orders an omelette and some fruit juice. They call out to the only place that's still open. They say who it's for, so the bloke from the restaurant takes it up to the room himself. He wants to see Pantani. Wants to see if it's all true. And he sees him. But it doesn't make sense. The champion. The pirate is a wreck. The smell coming off him. How strange he looks. How he's babbling. How he won't open the door properly or let him in. It's the 13th of February. Another guest across the corridor is going into his room. He hears this noise behind him. Turns around. It's Pantani. Shaved head. Bloodshot eyes. And Pantani stares at him and he says, I'm mad. And he mumbles and he rambles. He says, there's no way out of the tunnel. It's February 14th, Valentine's Day, at the Hotel La Rose. Pantani, at 34 years old, is alone. Just after 10 in the morning, he phones reception. He says people are disturbing him. People that no one else can hear. He phones again half an hour later. I want peace. 
Who are these people? And then, silence. At half five, the receptionist calls the room. Nothing. He goes out into the dark winter street, looks up at the window. No lights are showing. At 8.45, he takes two towels and walks up the stairs to the fifth floor. He has a key, but the door won't open. There's stuff piled up behind it. So he pushes and he shoves and he squeezes through and he sees the body of Marco Pantani, fallen. He is curled on the floor beside the bed. The face is swollen, bruised, white. There is a pool of blood spreading out around him. He is cold. There is no pulse. This is what the police find when they come. Cocaine on the floor, on the bedside table, on every flat surface. The microwave, unscrewed from the wall. Mirrors and plugs dismantled. A bedsheet and a tube pulled from the aircon unit, tied into a noose, hanging from the banister. And notes are made and the reports come together. The doctor's diagnosis is simple. Cardiac arrest from substance abuse. Forensics find a ball of white bread soaked in cocaine. They look at Pantani's nose, see that his mucous membranes are ruined by how much he's snorted down the years. They do toxicology tests and find he's got six times the lethal dose of coke in his bloodstream. They say he's been eating the coke, balls of it soaked in it. Here's a quote from one of the forensic guys. Pantani probably took some time to die. It was an ugly death. 20,000 people crowd around the church when the funeral takes place down the coast in another closed-up seaside town. Ordinary people, superstars, Alberto Tomba, the Olympic champion skier, Diego Maradona, who knows about cocaine, who knows about the Camorra. It seems simple, the truth, but now he's gone, everyone's fighting over it. Pantani's mother says he was framed, forced to eat the drugs. A friend says he was murdered. He says it's the Camorra, taking payment, taking their flesh. The police? They say he blew 20,000 euros in the last few weeks. They say he was spending 2,000 euros a night on a call girl from Russia. His old coach listens to the talk of doping and denies it all. Marco was born a champion. That's what he says. You can't just invent a champion. But the stories keep coming out. The computer files, the confessions. There's a doctor in Madrid who's been doping cyclists from Spain, from Holland, from Germany, from the US. Pantani's name's in there. The papers say the doctor gave him human growth hormone, steroids, insulin, 40,000 units of EPO. 40,000. There's a report from the French Senate. They've gone back. Tested samples from the 98 Tour de France. Pantani was on EPO then too. In his greatest moment. That's what they find. That's the truth when you look at it straight. 
Pantani dopes his whole career. But then, maybe we've all been doping. We all believed, we all loved the attacks, the speed, the way riders fly up mountains. We all wanted it, we all watched. 18 other riders from the 98 Tour get caught in those retrospective tests. Whole teams go, generations of riders. And you blame them, those fallen men. But who talks about the coaches? Who talks about the doctors, the ones who let them do it, who made it easy? The sponsors who saw their brands flying too. You think about Fausto Coppi, the original Italian cycling hero. Here's what riders around Coppi used to say. They say he's the first I knew who took drugs. La Bomba. That's what Coppi called it. Amphetamine. Not banned. Not when he was racing. Because they couldn't test for it. Coppi dies at 40. Some say it's malaria. Others say cocaine. Some think he's murdered. All these men descending too fast. Too little between them and oblivion. And Lance? Lance gets caught in the end too. After all those denials, all those lies, the miracle man turns out to be the greatest cheat of them all. But maybe he gets away with it too. He does the confession to Oprah. He does the redemption. He keeps the money, most of it. There's something Pantani scribbled on the pages of his passport. That time he went to Cuba. They read it out at his funeral. Here's what it says. I just lost my desire to be like all the other sportsmen. It says, cycling has paid. All my colleagues have been humiliated with TV cameras hidden in their hotel rooms to try and ruin families. It says, how could you not hurt yourself after that? That's the story of Marco Pantani. How he lives and how he dies. This episode was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. Our editor was Steve Jones. For research, we used The Death of Marco Pantani by Matt Rendell, as well as Rouleau Magazine, The Archives of BBC, Cycling Weekly, and Velo News. The music we used is from BMG Production Music. If this is your first episode, go back and check out our episode about Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And if you want another podcast to listen to, search for Murder in House 2. It's a podcast that has taken 15 years to make. It's a 10-part series about a filmmaker who ended up on the defense team of a guy facing 18 counts of murder. A lot of it was recorded in secret, but now the secrets are all out. Just search for Murder in House 2 in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. There'll be a new episode of Death of a Sports Star out every Monday. Crowd Network. 
a place where you belong. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.